Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Starting today, you can watch Cosmopolis, starring Robert Pattinson, available 14 days before DVD, Netflix, and Redbox. Also catch Struck by Lightning, now playing on demand before its release in theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough for me assuming your identity after you die in a futile attempt to help your loved ones get through the grieving process, as Allison and I review the very strange new film, Alps. Later, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Alps, we were strongly considering a podcast themed around movies that feature rhythmic gymnastics. But ultimately, I decided that it would be inappropriate and unfair to Matt, since, after all, I spent nine years studying rhythmic gymnastics and briefly considered turning pro before I gave it all up to pursue the truly lucrative profession of film criticism. How often do you regret that? How many times a day? As opposed to the lucrative profession of, <laughs> of rhythmic, rhythmic gymnastics. gymnastics. Yeah. It's a <laughs> tough really, call. It's a tough call either way. Yeah. yeah but um, instead, we're going to talk about movies about doppelgangers. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on K in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD, and we give you a rundown of a few other notable films new on demand on cable. Allison, what's our first pick this week? Our first pick is Cosmopolis, which will be on demand starting Tuesday, December 18th. Really terrific film uh, from David Cronenberg based on the novel by Don DeLillo and starring, yes, Robert Pattinson as a young billionaire named, named Robert Packer who spends a day traversing Manhattan in his high-tech limo. The traffic is terrible because the president's in town, because there's a funeral for Robert's favorite musician, and because of some violent anarchic protests. Um, but this is a really interesting film, especially for one that takes place largely inside a vehicle. It uh, is also very accidentally timely, given uh, the Occupy protests, a lot of this divide between the super luxurious world inside this vehicle and this this idea of all this money, that whatever the business is that Robert Packer is in, it basically just involves trading money for more money. Right. But uh, it, uh, and then on the outside, you have, at one point, literally, he's sitting in there talking vaguely with someone while outside People are shaking the like at the car and spray painting it. Show me my car. Any special reason we're in the car instead of the office? What makes you think we're in the car instead of the office? What do you do exactly? I think you acquire information and turn it into something stupendous and awful. It's the glow of cyber capital. So radiant and seductive. Do you ever get the feeling that you don't know what's going on? Interesting film. Not necessarily one that's uh, fraught with warm-blooded drama, but uh, no. a little chilly, but uh, deliberately Just a so. Tad. Deliberately so. And uh, I think a really interesting look at Pattinson, who is someone, you know, who's got such a huge teen following, but has yet to... Uh, really been have been able to strike out into a kind of grown up role. So yeah. I, I like this film a lot. I, I liked it. I don't know if I would say I liked it a lot. Maybe you liked it a little more than I did. It's certainly interesting, and as you said, it's certainly timely, and certainly one of the most passionate searches for a haircut I've ever seen in yes. the history of cinema. I don't think that can be denied. And Pattinson's uh, casting is definitely interesting because it is a very different sort of role for him, and a different kind of movie for him too. Very different, and yet he's still incredibly pale. 
He is really. Well, he's, he spends all that time in that limo. He's a, yeah, he's kind of undead looking no matter what. But it works for that character, though, who's does. kind of a vampiric quality to him, doesn't he? <laughs> Absolutely. So what more time? When is Cosmopolis available? It's available on demand starting uh, December 18th. And we've got two more picks for you this week, starting with Kumare, which is already available on VOD. Did you see this film, Allison? I did see it. It's directed by a man named Vikram Gandhi and starring him as well. It's an interesting film. And at times a very troubling one, I found. It is a documentary. This is the official description, I think, from IMDb. It is a documentary about a man who impersonates a wise Indian guru and builds a following in Arizona. At the height of his popularity, the guru Kumare must reveal his true identity to his disciples and unveil his greatest teaching of all. So Vikram Gandhi, the director and also the star, he's sort of interested in why people are so into yoga and sort of Eastern spiritualism. And so he creates this character almost to sort of see if he can trick people, if he can just make up stuff, because he's not an expert, uh, but he uh, he knows a little bit about these subjects. So his, it's sort of a, what if, could I convince people that I am a legit guru? And what would what would happen if I did? And uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say he succeeds to some degree. And then he's almost caught in this moral dilemma, which is people are starting to believe him. And almost their lives are kind of improving as a result. They're kind of growing under the tutelage of Kumare, who's talking gibberish. So he is faced with this moral quandary of like, what do I do now? I've created this character. It's like he, the, the it's like this monster. It's like a Frankenstein monster. He's created this thing. And now suddenly he's responsible for these people, these followers. And what is he supposed to do? And while that is a little troubling, I did find it to be an interesting movie. You know, it's sort of like um, a Borat-ish kind of thing, but taken to an interesting place where, you know, Borat's targets are generally racists, homophobic people, ignorant people, people who, you know, if they don't deserve mistreatment, they could probably use maybe an education. These people are the people that kumare is quote-unquote tricking or deceiving they're nice people and you feel they're, they're needy people they're often. needy exactly they're looking for something right know? they've got a hole in their hearts that needs filling and and they find it with this guy so it's a really interesting but maybe troubling movie is that how you felt as well yeah i i mean it i think like uh, part of the whole idea of it is to make you uncomfortable and i think it, it yes it succeeds makes you uncomfortable absolutely but it does i think raise some interesting questions about this kind of fetishization of a sometimes very vague Eastern culture, right. like kind of like meaninglessly so. so right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's Kumari and it is available now on VOD. Uh, available starting on December 18th. I'm excited for this one. I haven't seen it yet, Allison. Okay. Stolen. Directed by Simon West and starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> he plays a former thief frantically searching for his missing daughter who has been kidnapped and locked in the trunk of a taxi. Essentially, taken. it's Taken, starring <laughs> Nicolas <stolen>. Cage. <laughs> I have a very particular set of skills. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. Skills like stealing the Declaration of Independence. Give me back my daughter! I would see that movie Absolutely. in a heartbeat. That's the movie right there, Allison. Stolen. It's available on VOD starting on December 18th. It's a good Nicolas Cage impression. That's solid, yeah. yeah. Matt, we are very pleased to have Audible back as a sponsor this week. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. Matt, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? I do. I do indeed. Uh, if people have seen or heard about the new film that's out in theaters, Hitchcock, the biopic, that film, which I don't really like all that much, is based on a book that I do like very much. It's entitled Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho. It's written by Stephen Rebello, and the audiobook version, which is available on Audible, is narrated by Paul Michael Garcia. Have you ever read this book, Allison? I have not. You really should. It's a fabulous book. It was one of the very first books about filmmaking that I ever read. I read it for the first time in high school, and I loved it. All the details, the -the behind-the-scenes stuff about how every aspect of the production was made. Probably a lot more information than is in the movie. And and I just – I really got hooked by it. I remember I read it. I loved it. I wanted more. I that's I, Right after I, I, I bought another of my favorite film books, the, the interview book between Alfred Hitchcock and Francois Truffaut, it really sparked my interest in Hitchcock when I read it for the first time. I went back and reread it in grad school. It was still great. I Actually, seeing the movie and not really enjoying it made me want to read the book again. 
And if you've never read it or you're looking to revisit it, you can on Audible. For a free audiobook of your choice, including Matt's recommendation of Alfred Hitchcock and the making of Psycho, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders? <laughs> Each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder, I do yours. Coming into my station. For example, your wife, my father, Chris Cross. What? Oh, we do talk the same language, don't we? Well, sure, Bruno, we talk the same language. Thanks for the lunch. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thought the lamb chops were a little overdone myself. Nice meeting you. Now, you think my theory's okay, guy? You like it? Sure, Bruno, sure. They're all okay. Now, Alps is a, is a very unique movie, and because of that, we had a little bit of a challenge coming up with a theme for it. Once we eliminated rhythmic gymnastics. Right, which is the obvious theme. Yeah. A little too obvious. Too obvious. Really. Yeah, no fun. Yeah. So, but it, it was. This was the hardest theme we've had to come up with so far, I found. It was yeah. tough to pick. Like Sometimes the theme jumps out at you, or multiple themes, and there's lots of options. This one, we were like, what? are we gonna do with <laughs> yeah. movies that defy theming I, that doesn't work so eventually we settled on uh, doppelgangers or replacements substitutes doubles it's a pretty common theme a popular theme in, yes. uh, in film everything from persona to superman 3 so uh it runs the gamut it really, really does. If, you can, if you have a theme that ties in persona and superman 3 you've really spanned the all the different varieties of film that were out there yes and we did want to mention Film Spotting Original Recipe did an episode recently where they listed their top five doppelgangers. That was episode number 416. That was tied to their review of Looper. Now, they did mention a few films we are going to mention here, but uh, we're not doing a top five. These are the movies that are available on streaming. So we did want to mention a few of the films we're not going to talk about. You already mentioned Persona. We actually did a Listener's Choice review of Persona. We did. That was uh, a few episodes back. You can find that on filmspottingsvu.com. They also talked about The Double Life of Veronique. They talked about Solaris, which is available on Hulu. They mentioned Strangers on a Train. Of course, Hitchcock. It was a classic Hitchcock theme, Doppelgangers and Doubles. And uh, uh, Coraline was another great film they mentioned. So they mentioned a few of those. We're not going to talk about any of those. We've got six picks for you, not amongst those. Allison, do you want to start with your first pick? I would love to. My first pick is Adaptation, uh, the 2002 film directed by Spike Jones and written by Charlie Kaufman. It is currently streaming on Netflix. And starring Nicolas Cage. And starring Nicolas Cage. If only I had a Nicolas Cage Give me back my daughter. Oh, very good. <laughs> but um, this is a film about Kaufman, you know, played by Nicolas Cage, trying to adapt to the potentially unadaptable Susan Orlean book, The Orchard Thief, for the screen. But it's also really about like writer's block, authenticity and about how art and entertainment fit together and uh, Coffin does a really interesting thing in this movie in that he writes his own doppelganger into the story he gives his fictional version uh, on screen a twin brother named Donald also played by Cage who he allows to be free of like Charlie's crippling self-consciousness um, and who you know decides spur of the moment that like maybe I'll be a screenwriter takes a Robert McKee seminar and writes a completely nonsensical but uh highly successful already uh, appealing apparently commercial thriller that is one of the funnier parts of the movie when they they kind of pick it apart okay there's a serial killer right well no wait and he's being hunted by a cop and he's taunting the cop right sending clues who his next victim is he's already holding her hostage in his creepy basement so the cop gets obsessed with figuring out her identity and in the process falls in love with her even though he's never even met her she becomes like 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 the unattainable, like like the Holy Grail. It's a little obvious, don't you think? Okay, but here's the twist. We find out that, that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder, right? See, he's, he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that fucked up? The only idea more overused than serial killers is multiple personality. On top of that, you explore the notion that cop and criminal are really two aspects of the same person. See every cop movie ever made for other examples of this. Mom called it psychologically taught. Yeah, I think what's really one of the many things that's interesting about this movie, which I like a lot, is that Kaufman is such a well-known 
screenwriter now. You know, he's so he's done these really smart kind of uh, meta movies that I think it's it's easy to forget sometimes that he came up through TV. You know, he wrote for Chris Elliott's Get a Life. He was a writer and producer on Ned and Stacy, <laughs> so uh, he knows the kind of very commercial working within the system side of the business. That is actually where he got his start. So I think that the clash in this film between the need to, you know, make this kind of very high minded art versus the fact that you're making a film that, Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't necessarily have an obligation to entertain, but maybe within the system, it does have an obligation to entertain is so it's so kind of smartly put into these two characters. And there's also that real suggestion that, uh, Donald's a lot happier than Charlie is. So, you know, that, uh, that Donald is the one who ultimately, he kind of wins the movie in the mm-hmm. end as, as the film goes into some action sequences uh, that, it, you know, and that, that this, this drama kind of takes over right. what was otherwise uh, an inward looking film about writing. I love the way you put that, that it's, it's sort of this battle essentially within Charlie Kaufman himself. And what a brilliant sort of literalization of the war within himself between the hack and the artist, right? And that, yeah. that's literally what happens. And it's going to happen in a few of our picks. I think that's what a lot of doppelganger movies are. And in some cases, our writers or directors or actors sort of playing with this idea of the, we all have our dark sides and we all have these battles within ourselves. And movies often give us this chance to make it very blunt and literal in kind of a fun way, which is exactly what adaptation does. Yeah. And, you know, also a very funny performance from Nicolas Cage. Uh, Pretty great one. Absolutely. So that's Adaptation. It is available for streaming on Netflix. Well, you know, maybe we should have just made the theme Nicolas Cage, even (laughs) though he's not in Alps, although he should have been. (laughs) Because my first pick this week, which is available on Netflix as well, is Face Off from 1997, (laughs) directed by John Woo and starring who, Allison? Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. He plays Castor Troy. A psychopathic terrorist who's finally captured by FBI agent Sean Archer. It's a really bad uh, impression. (laughs) Who's played by John Travolta. And, of course, as I think many of you will know, through a series of events too stupid to say out loud, their faces and identities get switched. Now Archer the hero looks like Troy the villain. And he's stuck in jail while Troy the villain looks like Archer the hero and he's living in the hero's home, seducing his wife and even kind of his teenage daughter, as I recall, and kind of a uh... icky, incestuous-y kind of thing. And it has a lot of these themes we're talking about, but it's also just – it's Nicolas Cage at some of his most Cajian excess. Although, ironically, you know, you almost forget now uh, because it has been a while since I've seen the movie. And just looking back at clips of it, you, you, I had forgotten that he plays, for most of the movie, the hero. Because yeah. he's crazy in the beginning. He's got on the full crazy pants. The full cage crazy pants. And then his face gets switched. And then he's sort of the like mopey emo hero the whole movie. In prison, yeah. He's in prison. And, and he does have these freakouts where like – because the hero is kind of losing his mind because he's being confused. And he's sort of – as you might, if your face was switched with another man, you might forget who you are. But still, most of it is him being kind of like mopey. You, and, and, and John Travolta is the one who kind of does the full crazy. So you sort of, I think if this movie was made now, there's no way in hell Nicolas Cage would be playing the hero part, right, for most of the movie. The, that would have been reversed, I think, right? Really? I don't know. I feel like... I, I don't know that either of them is necessarily <laughs> primed to play the hero anymore. Maybe not. Maybe not. But it's a fun movie. You know, I think it, I, it's a little dated just because it has that John Woo, John Woo thing, which was flying dubs flying everywhere, double guns, you know, guns that never seemingly need to be reloaded. It is a very much of its time, but it's a fun movie and it's it, it doesn't take itself seriously. You know, it is so outrageous and over the top that it is a lot of fun. And just looking at clips today of it. Oh my god, I was laughing. It was so much fun. Just the how much and how much fun Cage and Travolta are having playing each other mm-hmm. is really great. Wow. We've got something in common. We both know our guns. What we don't have in common is that I don't care if I live and you do. Sean, that hurts. You're not having any fun, are you, Sean? Why don't you come with us? Try terrorism for hire. We'll blow some shit up. It's more fun. Shut the fuck up. You watch your fucking mouth. I'm about to unleash the biblical plague hell deserves. That is Face Off. 
It does star Nicolas Cage. It is fabulous. It is available on Netflix Watch Instantly. Okay, my next pick does not star Nicolas Cage, unfortunately, but it does star Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. It is The Prestige, 2006 film directed by Christopher Nolan, and still, I think, my favorite of his films. This is rentable on Amazon, YouTube, iTunes, and Vudu, and it's a a whole, there's a lot of doubling going on in this story. It's actually one of its, like, its main themes. Uh, Robert uh, Angier, who's played by Hugh Jackman and uh, Alfred Borden, played by Christian Bale, are rival magicians. And they both have for their greatest trick an act of apparent teleportation that ties into this theme of doppelgangers. I don't want to reveal, if you haven't seen this movie, how the tricks happen, because those reveals are actually an extremely important part of of the film and come towards the end. But it's needless to say, both involve giant sacrifices, different ones on the part of both artists. Um, And then the two are, of course, doppelgangers themselves. Um, Neither is really the hero. Both, at certain points, is the more sympathetic one and is the the more villainous one. And they have class differences. Uh, You know, one, Hugh Jackman's character, it comes from money, and Borden's is very working class. Uh, and they, you know, have shared a shared past that has divided them, but it oh, d- divided them exactly like doubles. Yes. And then in the background, you have also just you know Nicholas Tesla, played by David Bowie, is his character who is himself <laughs> had this rivalry with Edison, right? right? And yes. they, there's a whole sense of people who are willing to kind of take this uh, artistic or you know co- competition two extremes to the point where it like their artistic drive and need to beat this other person destroy their uh, the rest of their lives and their happiness every magic trick consists of three parts or acts the first part is called the pledge the magician shows you something ordinary the second act is called the turn magician takes the ordinary something and makes it into something extraordinary. But you wouldn't clap yet, because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. Uh, It's a really terrific movie, Uh, and if it's one that you haven't seen because it somehow might look a little silly, or because it came out at that time when there were so many magician movies, it is really, really well done. Uh, it's, It's a film I like a lot. So that's The Prestige. It's available for rent on Amazon, YouTube, iTunes, and Vudu. All right. That's a really good pick. Probably my favorite Christopher Nolan film as well. Now, my next pick is a little more obscure. It does not star Nicolas Cage either, sadly. I think we've moved past the, the Cagean portion of this episode, but maybe we got to do a whole Cage episode, I think. That's really what I'm deciding as we're doing this. I can, I can see the thought process happening. And I'll do the whole thing as Andy Samberg as Nicolas Cage. <laughs> It'll be really great. It'll be a whole thing. People will love it. They'll talk about it. It'll be great. But anyway, this is a much more obscure film, and this is part of the podcast that I really enjoy, Allison, because not only are we recommending movies to listeners they might not have heard of, Sometimes we get to discover movies we've never heard of either, and that's the the case here. We pick the theme. We're doing the research like we do every time. You're looking up and seeing what movies are about doppelgangers and what's available because that's a lot of what we talk about is what can you find online. And doing the research, I find this random little film available on Netflix Instant. It's 75 minutes long. What have I got to lose? And it turns out it's pretty good. It's entitled The Man With My Face. From 1951, directed by Edward Montaigne and starring Barry Nelson and a very young Jack Warden. Jack Warden, you may know from 12 Angry Men and Heaven Can Wait. He had a great career as a character actor. This was his very first movie. This is a very fine little uh, film noir thriller. It has a great premise repeated in countless movies and novels before and after. I mean, it's uh, you've seen this, this sort of story before. A man returns home from work. He finds an exact double in his house. His wife insists... That the imposter is the real him. His brother-in-law is there, and he agrees. Even the family dog growls at him. So has he gone mad? Is it a nightmare? Or perhaps, Allison, something a little more sinister. Hey, Cora, I thought I asked you to do something about those ice trays. Every time I want some ice, I have to use a hammer and a... For crying out loud. Hey, what is this? Oh, 
that? I'm a twin. Mother should have told me. It's amazing. Yeah, hey, that... It's like looking in a mirror. Oh, wait a minute. Who are you? Honey, pal. I was just going to ask you the same question. Both guys are played by Barry Nelson, who years later went on to play the manager of The Overlook in The Shining. <laughs> Uh, that's probably his most famous role. Um, so instead of trying to figure it out, uh, he goes on the run from the cops to try to prove his innocence. And what's kind of cool about it is uh, the, so many film noir movies from that period, they were about men and specifically American war veterans who were wrestling with their dark natures, their dark sides, almost as sort of a metaphorical weighing of like the horrors that they had committed during the war and this sense of like lost innocence and the man that they wanted to be and the man who they really were. And again, sort of like adaptation here, that idea is like literalized. This guy who's this veteran of the war comes home and he discovers this dark double of himself. You know, Barry Nelson finds out there is this literal evil version of him. And not only is there an evil version of him, he's replaced him and stolen his life, which I think is really interesting. Look, I'm not going to pretend like this is one of the greatest film noir movies I've ever seen, Allison. There's a lot of stock underworld character types. There's a lot of cliched dialogue. But it actually has kind of some nice twists. And according to Wikipedia, it's also the only film noir ever shot in Puerto Rico, which has a very nice kind of interesting visual quality to the film because it's very sunny which you know we don't expect sunniness from a film noir but it kind of adds this interesting dichotomy between the subject matter and the the location although in kind of a impossible way the ending still takes place in this shadowy system of tunnels they just magically find in puerto rico uh so you know look it's not an amazing film it's not a life-changing one but in this context i think it's an interesting discovery the man with my face from 1951, directed by Edward Montaigne, available on Netflix. Watch instantly. Okay, well, my next pick is also a film noir. It's uh, Now it's become kind of a film noir classic, but uh, at the time it was like a poverty row film. It was made for a budget and like in a length of time that you would associate these days with an indie, like a contemporary indie film. Uh, that film is Detour, which is 1945 film directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. It's in the public domain now, so it's streaming on Netflix and on YouTube. And um, it stars Tom Neal as Al, who is a piano player working in New York, who decides to hitchhike west to join his girlfriend Sue in California. She's trying to make it in showbiz. Um, he gets picked up by a man named Charles Haskell, who is oh, like a bookie and potentially kind of a con man. But either way, uh, he accidentally kills the guy in the middle of a rainstorm while trying to get the roof up on the convertible. So, uh, of course, he has no choice, really, but to take the guy's wallet and his identity and his car. And then, you know, very ill-advisedly, he picks up a hitchhiker he sees on the side of the road, uh, Vera, played by the great Anne Savage, who, uh, unfortunately, is, uh, happens to be the hitchhiker that uh, the guy had picked up a while ago. Who he saw, scratched him, uh, the guy he killed, scratched him on the hand. So she knows that he is not Haskell. How far did you say we're going? Los Angeles. L.A.? L.A. is good enough for me, mister. That's what I was afraid of. What'd you say? Oh, nothing, just thinking out loud. People get in trouble for doing that. What's your name? You can call me Vera if you like. You live in Los Angeles? No. Where are you coming from? Oh, back there. Needles? No. Oh, sure, Phoenix. You look just like a Phoenix girl. Are the girls in Phoenix that bad? So you, you have this whole doppelganger theme in that... Uh, Vera starts pressuring Al to pass himself off as Haskell for all these other reasons that involve getting money. But you also have the idea of, of Al maybe as kind of someone who's weaving the story of his innocence. I think one of the most interesting things about this film, uh, which actually gets a lot of atmosphere off of its low budget, is that... Al doesn't seem like an entirely trustworthy narrator. He does these terrible things, but he's, he's always like showing how they're not his fault. They're accidents. And so in a way, he is kind of his own doppelganger because he's presenting himself as this nice guy who got caught up in because of fit, the twists of fate, got caught up on all these terrible things. But when you listen to the story, you start to think that actually 
maybe he wasn't the innocent person in this all along. And then also there's Sue and Vera. Sue, who is this like blonde, uh, cheery, uh, you know, representation of all that is good there in California. And then Vera, who is this like incredibly uh, nasty, tough girl. Uh, and it's a really great performance, uh, femme fatale performance from Anne Savage. It's uh, it's really something. So uh, this film is only 68 minutes long. So if you really haven't had a chance, it goes very quickly. And even it is, shorter than The Man yeah, With My Face. Shorter. And it's, it's a pretty terrific movie. It's yeah. got like a lot of great touches that come with, I think, the limitations of its budget that make it seem almost like an allegory, the way it's set up. So that's Detour. It is streaming on YouTube and Netflix. This episode of Film Spotting SVU is sponsored by MoviePass, which is a new subscription service in which you pay a monthly fee and then you can see a movie per day at many major theaters. You check in using an app on your smartphone and use a membership card. It works on any new release, it, though it doesn't yet cover 3D or IMAX. If you're a frequent moviegoer or you know a frequent moviegoer, MoviePass is a service that could make a lot of sense because rather than paying per ticket, you just pay this flat fee for the month. And that gets you an entry to one film per day. Now, Allison, last time on the show, we made a joke about going to see Breaking Dawn Part 2 30 times in a month. That was a bad joke to make because we should have said Movie Pass does not allow you to go see the same movie over and over. You have to see a different movie. You can't see the same movie more than once. So let's be clear about that now. You can see one movie a day, but different films. Right. Um, and MoviePass is currently invite only, but they're offering a limited number of subscriptions to Film Spotting and Film Spotting SVU listeners, including 30 day, 90 day, and year long gift packages if you're still looking for a holiday present. My birthday is coming up, by the way. Yeah, you're not getting anything. Uh, all right, sorry. Yeah. Well, check out moviepass.com slash film spotting for more info and to get $10 off the second month of your subscription. What's the problem? Ξέρεις ποιο είναι το πρόβλημα. Είναι πολύ ωραίο. Ρυθμικό. Δεν μ' αρέσει. Με αποσυντονίζει. Γιατί να μην δούλεψω με με κάτι πιο pop. Δεν είσαι έτοιμη για κάτι πιο pop. Allison, this week's Listener's Choice review is Alps, which absolutely destroyed the competition in our bi-weekly poll. The other two options, which were Joe Dante's latest horror film, The Hole, and the hugely acclaimed documentary, How to Survive a Plague, they evenly split about 48% of the vote between them. And then the remaining 52% of SVU listeners, they all went for Alps. And that may have something to do with the fact that this is the latest film from Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, whose previous movie, Dogtooth, was the 2010 recipient of the Film Spotting Golden Brick, which is the award bestowed by our sister podcast, Film Spotting Original Recipe, for overlooked or under the radar films that contain unique directorial vision and ambition. Now, when we picked Alps as one of our three options, Allison, I don't think either of us were really aware how much of a perfect double feature it would make with our last listener's choice review, which was The Imposter, a documentary from earlier this year about a Frenchman who fooled a- an entire family from Texas into believing he was their long lost son. Now, Alps is about an organization that essentially hires themselves out as willful imposters. When someone dies, their loved ones can hire the members of the Alps, as they call themselves, to impersonate the dead one in their lives in order to assist in the grieving process. So for a fee, one of these four people will show up a few times a week, dress in the dead person's clothes, and act out scenes from their lives using carefully memorized dialogue. So those are our two natural points of entry here, Allison, the director's superb track record and the interesting parallels with our last Listener's Choice review, a film we both enjoyed a great deal. Yes. So those are my questions to you, Allison. Does Alps prove a worthy successor to Dogtooth? And how do you think the film compares to The Imposter in the way it depicts people and how they deal with grief? 
or refuse to deal with grief, as the case may be? Mm, interesting questions. Well, I think to, to deal with the first point with Dogtooth, there are a lot of similarities in terms of style and in terms of even how it's shot. Mm-hmm. These kind of um, shots that often even cut off people's heads. Sometimes they stand up out of the frame, which is something that I really liked about Dogtooth. Uh, and also just in terms of there being this almost secret language being used by this organization, you know, that you slowly understand. You only start to figure out what it is they do as the film goes along and understand how this universe works. And it's a very insular group. It you is, know, they're, yeah. they're, they are tied to a larger community in a way that the, the family in Dogtooth maybe wasn't. Right. But they are, yeah, they have this their own sort of world. Yes, they do. And like this kind of, the rules, there are rules within it. Yes. Uh, I, I think that it, did, it was not as successful for me as Dogtooth, but I did actually, I came to like it a lot as it went along, as I kind of understood where it was going. I don't think that you can parse it the way you can Dogtooth. Dogtooth, Dogtooth becomes, I think, like opens itself up to a lot of themes about authority and fascism in some ways, or just about isolation and control over other people. And I don't think that you can pick through the themes of this anywhere near as clearly. That was a meteor metaphor. Yes. This one... This one's a little more vague and melancholy. To answer your second point about the imposter, I think one of the things that's interesting and maybe also very interesting about the imposter, given the kind of complications of that storyline that arise, is that we never really get a sense of how useful the Alps service is Mm. to the families you know, no one seems very surprised by this offer, right? About like, hey, we will show up and reenact the scenes for you. Well, we only see the offer posed to one person. Right. Other or clients one group are of people. already they're already, already, they're already members. Right. Yeah. But that we don't really see that it's necessarily helping them process their grief or get over it in some way. We don't get a sense of how a, like a client's life with the company works. Yeah. So, uh, I think that there's, it's certainly much more abstract in that sense. Yeah. Okay, but so, Matt, my question for you is, uh, this film stars Agaliki Papulia, I'm sorry if I'm slaughtering that, as Monterosa, she's the main character, and one of the members of the Alps, and maybe, and the most troubled member of mm-hmm. the Alps. Uh, she played the older sister in Dogtooth. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what you thought of the kind of use of that character. Again, in Dogtooth, she is trying to escape from this world. And in this film... She's almost trying to kind of break into other people's lives. She is very attached to this service, maybe more so than is healthy. Right. You could argue she is getting more out of the service as the person providing the service than her clients are in some in some ways. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, she certainly does. And her character does kind of hit on the common themes between the two films, some of which you mentioned. I also felt like denial people's ability to deny the outside world or to deny reality in some way was a big theme of both films and also this idea of taking like human very natural human emotions and twisting them to monstrous extremes so in dogtooth you know the desire to protect your children the most natural healthy thing in the world twisted in this really disgusting way here you know people's you know, need to get over the loss of a loved one. You know, everyone has to deal with grief. But then in this way, which seems really unhealthy and strange, both for the people who are hiring the the Alps and also for the people who are the members of, who none of whom seem all that, uh, all that healthy mentally themselves. I will say, you said that you came to, you didn't think the movie was as successful as Dogtooth, but you came to really like it. I, I don't know if I'm ready to join you there. I, mm. I didn't really like that this movie that much to the point where by the end of it, I was beginning to wonder if I had overrated Dogtooth a little because wow, I, yeah. I this one didn't really feel like it held that much for me. You know, it's challenging and I don't mind being challenged if I feel like at the end I'm getting a reward, you know, like if the challenge is worth something. And I honestly didn't feel at the end like there was all that much to it. As you said, Dogtooth had all these really interesting metaphors wrapped up in it and I mean, as you said, it's like, what are these people getting out of the Alps? What are the Alps getting out of it? I felt like there were so many questions left unanswered and not in an interesting way, not in a way that made me want to, you know, mull on it, to, to really explore it in my own time. There are movies that are ambiguous, that leave us with questions that haunt us. Nothing about this movie haunted me. I just felt like I, it just felt half-baked. The whole world of these characters, it felt so divorced from 
reality, which is kind of interesting because that's another theme of his. You know, the, the characters in Dogtooth are sort of willfully divorced from reality. Here I felt the whole movie just felt like it was divorced from any recognizable reality. It just seemed uh, kind of willfully obtuse in a way that I didn't really enjoy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that one of the interesting aspects for me to the reenactment scenes, to the substitutions was what was being substituted, you know, those scenes that they were chosen. In one case, it's a woman, like, stumbling on her husband cheating on her with her best friend. Not the memory that you would think that you would want to relive, but there's a real sense that you're not, like, these these clients do not want necessarily the best memories, but need to somehow process mundane or difficult ones as well you yeah. know at a certain like there are points where when they they kind of battle over who gets to be the substitute for a teenage girl who is not dead at the start of the movie i think what a you know one of the interesting scenes that gets you into the world of this film is she's in the hot she's in the ambulance being dragged off and the guy is asking her you know you might not make it. Who's your favorite actor? Right. <laughs> um, which is a question that comes up again. There's a and lot again of talk throughout. of actors in yeah. Hollywood and celebrities in yeah. this movie. Acting and the, the idea, because the acting, the idea of acting, I think, is so central to the Alps that right. it's sort of a, a theme that connects. Right. Know? But I think that the human, like the entry point for like any kind of human emotion in this movie is through Monterosa, who is clearly has like a giant absence in her, you mm-hmm. know, like has this hunger right. for just borrowing other people's lives, particularly this teenage girl. You know, all that we see of her personal life is her going home to someone who she calls her father or like, you know, refer like seems to treat as a father, but it's unclear as to whether or not he is just another client. Very possible. He is for. another client. Yep. Yeah. Um, and g- particularly given what happens towards the end. Right. Uh, that I think that, this the idea that she is kind of has nothing has no connections other than the ones that she can borrow mm-hmm. is I, one that I found genuinely moving and I think the kind of weirdness of the world worked for me in the context of seeing it through that character but I I mean I would agree I don't think that there is a way to to break down the idea of what the Alps does like the group does in a way that necessarily, uh, you know, can, can, can holds together. Yeah. None that I could see, at least. It's kind of interesting how it does make you look kind of cross-eyed or suspiciously at every single relationship in the movie. Because they never really divulge all the details. And because the film is made and shot so obliquely that a lot of it is left to your interpretation, that you can wonder, well... Yeah, like the, the situation with the man who seems like her father. Is that her father? Is that a role that's being played? And then you can do that with all the people in the movie. You can say, are these are these other members of the Alps? Are they really members of the Alps? Or are they – is this another – you know, how deep does this sort of thing go? And it suggests a sort of worldview where it's like all human relationship is this sort of strange kind of role-playing, which is, is interesting, although – I don't know if not I necessarily, necessarily agree and also with not it. necessarily that profound, right? Right, yeah. right. But I just felt like, you know, and I'm I'm sure as listeners who like the movie and there the movie has people who, you know, there's lots of champions of this film, they'll probably say, well, part of the reason we like it is that it leaves so much open to the viewer. But I was sitting there going like this organization, which apparently is a for-profit organization, how did it get together? Why? To what goal other than money, you know? And why would anyone hire them? And why would why would anyone want to work for, let's say, the main guy, the main Mont Blanc, Mont Blanc, who seems like an absolute inhuman monster <laughs> and who treats his his clients so horribly? It's like, why would anyone want to work for him other than the fact that they're just as de- demented as he is and how everyone in the entire world is demented? I mean, it's kind of a sad worldview, isn't it? I mean, it is, but I think so is Dogtooth. You know, yeah. there are all those questions in Dogtooth. Why would you decide to keep your family in isolation? How do they manage to stay in isolation for so true, long? True, true. You know, I feel like that... But, but th- there, that world was so closed yeah. off. You could you could accept that one family would do something this insane. And here, these people apparently have a working business model right. with clients uh, all over the, the area where they live. It just seems kind of... Yeah, it's so strange. It's sort of like I was imagining. It's like it's like imagine if you made Ghostbusters, and instead of it being about them like busting ghosts, it was about their home lives and sitting around having these weird meetings about decorum and the rules and like a scene where they decide what to call themselves, and then they go home and have weird 
vaguely incestuous relationships with their families. It's like that's essentially what you're watching here because the most interesting thing is this organization, which is almost like literally – it's almost like half out of the frame, which is how he shoots the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, there are scenes where the frame is, as you said, characters' heads are cut off. Really, the whole approach to the visual style of the movie is to not show things. You know, there are scenes where the entire frame – it's a wide frame – is blurry. And the only thing that's in focus is one of the characters in the very foreground corner in shadow. So literally all we're seeing is a a view of blurriness. And I guess that reflects sort of the very confused, very upset, blurry viewpoints of these characters. But there's also a lot of this movie where you're just like sitting there staring at blurriness. I don't know if I noticed a lot of blurriness. Really? Because I, mean, I did several times. Really? I, I mean, like, I'm definitely... Like remember, and I remember this in Dogtooth as well. There are times where they don't really do a, a like a shot counter shot in a conversation. Mm-hmm. A conversation will happen with the camera just holding on one person's face, mm-hmm. uh, and and then not ever necessarily going back to see who's to who's talking. But I, I mean, to that point of also the limited vision, I think one of the things with the process of what the Alps do uh, is. I mean, it did remind me a little bit about Solaris and those ideas about mourning in which all you have of someone is this incomplete memory. You know, mm-hmm. you have a memory of them, mm-hmm. but it is your memory of them, not this person as a whole anymore. So the idea of like hiring someone to recreate this is like a ridiculous idea, right? You know, you have the first time you see one of the Alps get dressed up in like a captain's hat to like recreate his friend. And it like it, you you are made to see the absurdity of the whole idea, but then the whole idea is absurd in that you're not recreating this person, right? You are you are bringing together your particular memories of them, which are not a whole, and then kind of using that for your own whatever your needs are, emotional needs in that. So I, I think that there is something there, and I don't know that it ever really comes together, but there is something that I like a lot about that that you're mourning someone but that you can only mourn your your kind of in like by essence like narrow you know exposure to them yeah and i and, and certainly the, i agree with you that the, the ideas that are like sort of underpinning this concept of the alps is are very interesting i guess maybe if anyone in this movie really felt to me like they were grieving about something I might have connected with the movie more, but the people that everyone speaks so robotically, even the people, you know, and that again, that's sort of by design because a lot of these conversations are literally scripted, you know, that the, they are playing these roles and they're reenacting scenes from their past. And actually one of the scenes that I liked best was a scene where we see people rehearse Uh and then, and then do the scene, which I thought that actually I found fascinating, but there's, there's like, it's so cold and so distant and there's like, it's a movie about grief, this intense thing, and there's so little sort of intensity to any of the grieving. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the, the main sort of uh, family that we follow that sort of loses this this young woman who is then replaced, and we get to see the process of how it works in terms of like selling them on this idea and then starting to adopt this woman's physical attributes, her personality. They just seem so distant and so blasé almost that it just it just didn't connect to what was going on so even as the ideas are interesting i didn't get really wrapped up in anything that was going on except maybe that main character's sort of her breakdown as the film progresses because at least finally we're seeing someone with some sort of recognizable human emotions which i felt were sort of missing uh but before we wrap things up here allison we made a joke early in the show about the rhythmic gymnastics which there's several scenes of rhythmic gymnastics one of the members of the alps is a rhythmic gymnast one of the other members is her coach maybe again we don't really understand the relationships so my question is why (laughs) <laughs> what did rhythmic gymnastics have to do with anything? What did their other day jobs do? They all have day jobs, right? Well, yes, but but two of the, their other day jobs are a nurse or a caregiver in a hospital of some kind and an ambulance driver, which makes sense because you could argue, although I don't know the movie makes a great case, that they are sort of frustrated caregivers. Like they can't help sick people. So this is the way they can help their loved ones is by sort of easing them through the grieving process. I don't know that the movie actually makes that argument that that's where they're doing, but you could almost say that that's why. And at the very least, it helps them find clients because they're able to, as you said before, like recruit people into the into the group. 
what does rhythmic gymnastics have to do with anything? I think that your search for kind of like a more a, lo- a logical explanation for this <laughs> is like a doomed one. Is a completely doomed one. I think what I liked about the rhythmic gymnastics scenes, other than the weirdness of the rhythmic gymnastics, you know, being there and the big fight being about whether or not she can dance to a pop song, right? Uh, like a really serious like disagreement here yes. too. Is the moment where you see her try and convince him of something by reciting like you are the best you are the world's greatest coach this very rote recitation of clearly something that he has wanted her to say that like or prepped her to say before and she's saying it to kind of convince him and then that coming around towards the end when she says it in completely sincerely and then means it mm-hmm. and then in that as a kind of bookend to the recitation versus the real delivery i liked a lot i don't know what it necessarily comes down to but i thought it worked really well all right so you would ultimately say not as good as dog tooth but you would recommend it you'd say it's worth saying i'm not sure i would go that far i would say an interesting uh misfire perhaps at best Yes. And I would say go rewatch Dogtooth one more time because I still and, enjoy it. And they are both on Netflix. They're both streaming on Netflix. So Absolutely. you can do that. You could do a double feature, perhaps. Boy, that would be a weird night. <laughs> okay, it is time for Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Matt, you're up first. Are you ready? I'm ready. There's a lot of good stuff to talk about. Let's do it. All right. What's three new picks? Three new picks begin with The Adventures of Tintin, available on Netflix Instant. This was Steven Spielberg's motion-captured animated film, which I really enjoyed. I felt like it went a little bit underrated. Uh, I know that a lot of people preferred War Horse. Or a lot of people didn't like either one. I really enjoyed The Adventures of Tintin. I thought it was one of his best movies in a long time. Also available on Netflix Instant, The Kid with the Bike, the new film from the Dardan brothers. Maybe not their greatest film, maybe not one of their best films, but another beautiful film uh, in their classic style. Really worth watching. I think it might rip your heart out and wring it out to dry. It's sort of, it's, it is the opposite of Alps. It is not a cold film at all. You will, be, you will be near tears if not crying. And finally, The Loneliest Planet, also available on Netflix instant starting on december 18th a very interesting movie which i know you like a lot allison allison i think likes it even more than i do but definitely an interesting film about a couple who go on this vacation through not the alps but uh, the mountains of georgia and something happens in the middle which completely changes their relationship that one scene alone where something happens is worth the price of admission which if you have netflix instant is nothing starting on december 18th okay and two expiring films Expiring on December 20th on Netflix, the beautiful film from Olivier Assayas, Summer Hours, about a family dealing, again, it's like the Alps, but again, not horrifically cold, dealing with loss and sort of using art and uh, the way that art and possessions, art becomes a possession to sort of grapple with these themes of of life and and loss and the aging process. Uh, That's available on Netflix until December 20th, available on Netflix until Christmas Day, Iron Man 2, another powerful film about (laughs) loss and art and the grieving process, and about a guy with a giant suit of armor. Certainly not the best of the Marvel films, but, you know, if you're looking for a movie to watch that's uh, two hours of fluff, it is available on Netflix until Christmas Day. And one from your queue. You gave me number 80. And that film, another film about death. Actually, it is probably about (laughs) the grieving process and refusing to let go. The Brain That Wouldn't Die which I, I've seen uh, on, it was an MST3K episode. I have seen the MST3K episode. I don't think I've ever seen the actual film. Lord only knows why I thought I might someday watch the actual film on uh, Netflix. But I put it on there. It's on the queue. It's number 80, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Allison, are you ready for your own countdown? I am ready. Let's go. Let's begin with three new releases. Okay, first on Hulu, That Obscure Object of Desire, Louis Benoit's final film about an older French man who falls in love with a fiery younger woman who beguiles and totally confounds him in a doppelganger I was going to say it's a doppelganger film. Yes, and he, you know, is completely confounded by her and doesn't seem to notice that she's played by two different actresses, Mm. uh, Carol Bouquet Bouquet and Angela Molina at different times. Um, Also new on Hulu, Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale, 
2010 Finnish film, not your typical holiday fare, about a drilling operation up north and cover a mysterious burial site in the Arctic. And there's something terrible inside that begins terrorizing the local population. Santa Claus. I hate those mysterious burial grounds in the Arctic. They're the worst. Yeah, Nothing that's, good happens up there. It's a lot, this movie's a lot of fun, and it's a vaguely Joe Dante-ish. Uh, that's a, uh, Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. And finally, new on Netflix is Clean Flicks, 2009 documentary about how there was that Utah trend of video stores, and particularly one chain, producing their own edited versions of Hollywood movies in which they took out the profanity, the nudity, any objectionable content, particularly, you know, especially for the Mormon community. And of course they were sued by the DGA, by like Soderbergh and Spielberg and Redford and all these people who are like, you can't edit our movies without our permission. Really interesting issue to be explored, especially with ideas about participating in mainstream culture while not wanting to deal with things that conflict with your religious beliefs. So that is new on Netflix. Okay, and two expiring titles. Expiring December 24th from Netflix is Still Walking, Hirokazu Koreeda's really wonderful film about a family having their annual gathering to commemorate the death of the eldest son several many years before. Uh, just a terrific family drama. And expiring on December 31st is Monster Thursday. It's a 2004 surfing drama set in the unexpected location of Norway. It's apparently not a bad place to surf, if a cold one, you would think. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, and that is expiring on the 31st. Okay, and one random film from your queue? You gave me number 12, which is a film that I think has been sitting in that position for a long time. It is The Virgin Stripped Bear of Her Bachelors, 2000 Hong Sang-soo film that I've been meaning to watch forever, have heard terrific things about, but uh, I have not gotten around to. Okay. All right. Well, it's time to talk about next episode's Listener's Choice Options, although technically... These options are going to be uh, in two episodes from now, and we'll explain why in a little bit. Allison, what is our first listener's choice option? Our first listener's choice option is Dark Horse. This is the new film from Todd Salons, who you may remember from Happiness, cheery films like Welcome to the Dollhouse. I actually really like this film. It is arriving on Netflix on uh, the 1st, January 1st. And uh, I think it's actually one of the underappreciated films of the year about a an unlovable loser living at home with his parents and looking for love. And you could, it could even serve as a kind of unofficial sequel to the first part of storytelling with Selma Blair, sort of. So you saw it and you enjoyed it. I did. I haven't seen it, yes. but I definitely would be happy to see it. So that is on Netflix? Yes, on January 1st. Okay. Our listener's choice, option number two, is a film neither of us has, has seen yet. Very much looking forward to. It is entitled Killer Joe... It will be available on VOD starting on December 21st, and I believe it's already available on iTunes. It is directed by William Friedkin, of course, the director of The Exorcist and The French Connection and so many films. It's based on a play by Tracy Letts, who I believe uh, wrote the the play that William Friedkin's recent previous film, Bug, was also based on. So this is a, a reunion of sorts. It stars an excellent cast that includes Matthew McConaughey, Emile Hirsch, Juno Temple, Thomas Hayden Church, Gina Gershon, and more. Uh, the description of the film is when a debt puts a young man's life in danger, he turns to putting a hit out on his evil mother in order to collect the insurance. Allison, this has gotten some uh, uh, good reviews. It's been described as a really kind of like dirty, grungy, noir film, really dark, but kind of funny. And God, it sounds awesome. And I, sound I, like I can't it. wait to see it. And I got to be honest, whether people vote for it or not, I'm going to watch this movie. And so it would just be convenient for me if this was the film that won. Okay, well, for our third pick, we have a film that I'm sure a lot of you have seen. We have definitely seen it, but yes. we're, we're interested in revisiting it. Yes. That film is The Usual Suspects, which is coming to Netflix on the last day of the year, on December 31st. Directed by Brian Singer, who, you know, is a big-time director now. He's got the uh, first two X-Men and X-Men Days of Future Past uh, in pre-production now. And uh, curious to see how this one holds up. You know, it was 1995. Yep. So Kevin Spacey, Gabriel Byrne, uh, you know, we'll, we'll want to see if, if it's still... I remember really loving it the first time it came out. Look, let's... Still watch it on TV. I'm not going to mince words. When that movie came out, I mean, I thought it was one of the greatest films ever made. Now, granted, I hadn't seen a lot of movies, but as a 15-year-old, as a I thought that was the bee's knees. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. And I watched it over and over <laughs> again. But then I haven't probably seen it in... Ten years, maybe? Yeah, same here. Yeah, so. so curious to see. Will we still find it amazing? 
or will we not? So I think that could be a very interesting discussion. So which of these movies should we review on FilmSpotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, January 7th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on that episode, which will be on Monday, January 14th. And yes, that means you have several extra weeks to vote in this listener's choice. And that's because our next episode in two weeks will be a very special – it's a very special SVU episode, Allison. Instead of doing the usual listener's choice review and cue shots, we'll be handing out the first annual SVUVIES, our awards for the best in film for the year 2012. We're still going to have plenty of streaming and VOD suggestions. But we're also going to be giving out some fun awards and some – we do this. We used to do this on our old podcast. We had a lot of fun with it. I know listeners have uh, asked for it back. It's sort of like uh, instead of giving best actor, we'll give best on-screen chemistry. Instead of giving best uh, director, we give best scene. So that will be our next episode, and then we'll be back to our regular schedule uh, with that listener's choice review you pick in one month. Well, Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the episode. The Film Spotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with uh, the Svoovies and more <laughs> movie recommendations. It just rolls off the tongue. It really does. Svoovies, Svoovies, <laughs> Svoovies. In the meantime, you can follow Svoovies. me and... Matt on uh, Twitter at twitter.com slash Alison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show on Twitter at FilmSpottingSVU. That is where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For FilmSpotting SVU, I'm Alison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>